But we'll turn to God's Word now. If you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn to Matthew 5, verse 21. We are going to talk about anger today. Everybody's favorite subject. It'll be good. Let's read God's Word. Matthew 5, 21 to 26. Jesus teaches this. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to, with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now and we ask that your spirit that is alive in each of us through Christ speak to our hearts. Father, your word is living, it is active, and we are in desperate need of your spirit to work in us through your word. Father, we ask today that as we reflect on these words from Jesus teaching us about anger, may we examine our own hearts to see where anger maybe lies that we need to deal with. Father, we know that anger is not of your kingdom, although there are moments of righteous anger that is good and right. But Lord, we know that for the most part, the anger that comes from a human heart is, is sinful and wicked. And so Lord, we want to address that today we want to look into our own hearts and see where anger lies and and ask you father to to remove that anger to bring our hearts further under your lordship that we may reflect our savior in jesus name Amen. well as you can tell, we've, we've kind of now began or are beginning today a new section of the Sermon on the Mount. And this section of the Sermon on the Mount, it deals further with Christian character that we looked at before. Uh, and it's Christian character in relation to other people. Uh, and the section that we're into now and the section that we'll be into for the next six weeks or so uh, is often referred to as the six antitheses. Because the next six topics that Jesus addresses in the sermon, uh, they relate to the Old Testament law, but he presents his teachings uh, as an antithesis to the Jewish understanding of the Old Testament law. He's addressing some misunderstandings that the Jews held about the law and the prophets. And it's called the six antitheses because each of the six teachings begins in the same way that we just saw in Matthew 5, verse 21, where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said. And I touched on the meaning of this very briefly 
last week, I pointed out that it is important for us to note as followers of Christ that Jesus is not saying here, you have read that it was written. He says, you have heard that it was said because Jesus is not criticizing the Old Testament law as it was originally given by God. And this makes sense because as we looked at last week, Jesus holds the highest possible view of the authority of the Old Testament. And he says he did not come to remove the Old Testament. He did not come to abolish the written law. He says that he came to fulfill the law. And so he would not criticize that which he came to fulfill. And we said last week, the fact that he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets means that he is the one to whom the Old Testament scriptures point. I'm going to invite you, if you didn't hear last week's message, to go back and listen to that so you can get context around the idea of Jesus being the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. But this week, we're going to look at 21 and on to 26. And so his statement, you have heard that it was said, is not Jesus criticizing the law as given by God the Father. He is criticizing how the Old Testament was being taught and interpreted by the religious leaders, specifically the religious leaders of his day, the scribes and the Pharisees. And so you have heard that it was written is his criticism of the errant understanding and application of the law in the following six teachings that we're going to look at over the next several weeks. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on it, he highlights how they should be understood, these six antitheses. He says this, Jesus contrasts the people's misunderstanding of the law with the true direction in which the law points, according to his own authority, as the law's fulfiller. Thus, if certain antitheses appear to revoke at least the letter of the law, they do so only because Jesus insists that his teaching on these matters is the direction in which the law actually points. And so what we're going to see is as we look at the first antithesis this morning, we'll see what Carson is talking about. When we look at Jesus' teaching on anger, the letter of the law says, thou shall not murder... But Jesus teaches the direction in which that law is prohibiting murder, the direction in which that points is to the heart issue that leads to murder, and that heart issue is anger and hatred. And so as we look further at his teaching together, we're going to see how Jesus is correcting the incorrect interpretations of the Old Testament command. So Matthew 5, 21, we'll start there. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder... And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And so what Jesus is basically saying to the people here is this. He's pointing out to the Jews. He's saying, heads up. The scribes and the Pharisees are teaching you that it was said to those of old, meaning those who received the law from God during the time of Moses, uh, the scribes and Pharisees are teaching you that they were taught, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now for us this morning, as we read that, as we read what the scribes and Pharisees were teaching, we may think, well, that sounds right. That, that sounds pretty good. It doesn't sound like they're, they're messing with God's teaching very much there. It sounds pretty accurate, right? If you commit murder, judgment will come. That's pretty accurate. But let me ask you a question. Is this the form in which that law was originally given? Is this the form in which the law, do not murder, was given to God's people? And we can see the answer for ourselves if you turn in your Bibles to Exodus 
because this commandment is part of the Ten Commandments. And we can see in there exactly how it was originally given by God. Exodus 20.13 says, You shall not murder. God did not give this command with the second half included that the Pharisees were teaching. He only wrote, you shall not murder. In the second half of that sentence, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment, that was actually taught later as though it was part of the original command, but it wasn't. And so there's two questions that we have to consider this morning based on this addition that's happened. The first question is, where did the second half of it come from? And the, the second question is more important than that. It's, does it really matter? Like, are we just picking at silly things here? Why does it matter that it was added? Because Jesus obviously thought that it was mattered because he addresses it. And so to answer the first question, it's pretty simple. The, the second part of it came from another part of God's law. It came from Deuteronomy 16, verse 18. In Deuteronomy 16, verse 18, the Lord says this. He says, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. So this was a direction from God to the Israelites to appoint judges in all of their towns who could righteously judge the people according to the law that he had given them. Now in Jesus' day, those who were appointed as judges over the people were called the Sanhedrin. They were the council that was made up of the Pharisees that would try cases of Jewish law. This was the same council that Jesus was brought before uh, leading up to his crucifixion. And so the scribes and the Pharisees were, 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 what they were doing is they were marrying up God's command not to murder with his command for human judges to judge the people righteously. And so that's where the addition came from. So now the, the more important question is, why does it matter? Why does it matter that they added that addition to the original law? Because as I said, it obviously mattered to Jesus since he was correcting it. What was the error that Jesus is correcting in their interpretation of the law that was based on this addition? It matters because when the second half was added, to you shall not murder, it ultimately reduced the seriousness of the commandment by giving it a very specific and diminished meaning. It narrowed the meaning to it strictly to the physical act of murder, the criminal milling, or the criminal killing, milling, the criminal killing or unjust taking of another human life. So why did this diminishing happen? And it was bound to happen, right? This diminishing bound to happen as soon as they married these things two together. When they added the command, you will be liable to judgment because it was referring to human judgment, the human counsel that would judge the people rather than God's judgment. And this shift the judgment from God to man and it undermined the spirit in which the command was originally given by God. And here's why, because human beings are lousy judges of another person's heart. I am a terrible judge at what's going on in Blair's heart. I can see his outward actions, but I can't tell you what the root of those actions necessarily are. We don't know what's going on in the inner being of another person with any sort of authority. Only God 
knows that. And so any human can only judge with any sort of authority the outward actions of an individual. In this case, the physical act of murder. But the physical act of murder is kind of like riding a train to the end of the line. There are a lot of stops before you reach the end of the line. And there is a lot going on in an individual's heart before committing the act of physically murdering another human being. Namely, as Jesus points out here, anger and hatred are deeply present in a human heart that commits that sort of physical Such matters of the heart only God can judge, not human beings. And so Jesus is teaching here, he's returning the command, you shall not murder, back to God's judgment, not man's judgment, and ultimately back to what it points to, not strictly the physical act of murder, but the heart condition that motivates a person to commit such a grievous act to another one of God's creatures. God's focus is always primarily the heart behind our actions. And the inner anger and the inner hatred present in an individual's heart toward another that can eventually, if left undealt with, lead to the physical act of murder is what God is primarily concerned with and is what God holds us accountable God condemns anger and he condemns hatred in the human heart long before it reaches the ultimate act of physical murder, the physical taking of another image bearer's life. And this makes sense if we really think about it. Just think about the holiness of God. We think about the, the holiness of the one whom we get to dwell with through Jesus Christ. Would it seem fitting if God's standard would be to only condemn the physical act of murder? You know, it doesn't seem fitting for a holy God. The sixth commandment points prophetically to the condemnation of hate in the kingdom of God that Jesus is ushering in. And this is what Jesus is trying to point out to the Jews. Jesus is making it clear this is what he's doing. And he makes this clear in verse 22. Verse 21 says, this is what you've been taught. And then verse 22 says, but I say to you, this is what it actually means. This is what it actually points to. Verse 22, he says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is pointing out God's intention for his law. So to be angry with another, to insult another person, to treat them with contempt, to say to another person, you fool, which means literally consider someone's brain to be empty, that they are stupid and without sense. To have this kind of attitude toward another person condemns us. That's what Jesus is teaching us. When we have this attitude, it is us entertaining the root of murder in our heart because the root of murder is anger and hatred. Jesus is convictingly serious about this. Because you aren't just liable to human counsel for these things, to human judgment. You are liable to the hell of fire. 
He's making it blatantly clear. God will judge you for your anger toward other people. He will judge you for your insults that you throw at other people. And that is regardless of whether you say these things to their face or cowardly behind their back as you're in your home talking to your spouse or a friend. You will be accountable to the God who sees everything. And the judgment for such anger is not ultimately at the hands of a human council, but at the hands of God Almighty. As Jesus says, a very stark picture there, the hell of fire. The Greek word, there is this word Gehenna, and it would have given, given the Jews a very clear picture of what Jesus was talking about. Gehenna was the spot just outside of the city of Jerusalem where the Jews would throw their fire and burn it. What a light teaching that Jesus is giving regarding anger here. He's not pulling any punches regarding this issue in the human heart. The apostle John, he echoes Jesus' words in his own apostle in 1 John 3.15. He says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that murderer has eternal, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John doesn't pull any punches either. You know that every person that hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him? These aren't, these aren't scriptures that we can easily just kind of put to the side as though it's just extreme language for no reason. We need to wrestle with the seriousness that we find in these scriptures. Following this deeply convicting teaching, Jesus uses two illustrations then to show us the seriousness of anger in verse 23 to 26. Now, interestingly, when you first read them, one of the things that you're going to notice is that these illustrations actually seem a little bit out of place, right? Because they don't deal with your anger directly. They don't seem to deal with exactly what Jesus just said in verse 21 to 22. Rather, they deal with the recognition of offense towards another person. So the first illustration that Jesus gives is in Matthew 5, 23 to 24. He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift and there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And then the second illustration he gives is in verse 25 and 26. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Well, now, why does Jesus include these, these illustrations? Why does he include these illustrations that seem to shift the focus from anger to reconciliation with our brother? And I think Jesus shifts the focus from anger to reconciliation because anger is incredibly me-centered. Anger is all about me. Anger is rooted in me being the center of my universe. And it is ultimately concerned with self. I don't like how things are going. I feel offended. I perceive an injustice. 
I don't like how you are acting. You or this situation is not living up to my expectations. I want it my way and you got in the way. I had a plan and you ruined it. I make the rules. Anger is the result of someone messing with your little kingdom. That's what it is. In anger, just to be clear, for those of you who think that maybe you're getting off easy, anger can be an outburst of yelling. It can be an outburst of name-calling. It can be slamming doors. It can be any outward action. Or it can also come in the form of passive aggressiveness. Ignoring another person. Refusing to acknowledge their existence. I think the term for it is putting them in a doghouse. It goes both ways. You may not burst out with anger, but it doesn't mean you're not angry. Are you passive aggressive? Will you just ignore and deflect? At the root of our anger is pride. The root of anger is pride. Because it's me reacting to an assault or a perceived assault on me and my little kingdom. It's me saying, in my heart, my will be done. So Jesus illustrates the importance of reconciliation because he understands if we struggle with anger, we are so much more likely to remember and hold on to what others have done or said to us. Because it's me-centered. You've come against my little kingdom rather than what we have done or said to others. And if we are truly going to be concerned with our anger and deal with our anger and destroy its hold on us in the name of Jesus, then it means killing our pride. It means removing the me-centered mindset and being concerned with other people, being other-focused and being willing to go to those whom we have wronged. That's how we're going to kill our anger. Kill your pride. Remove the me-centered mindset and be concerned with other people. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You know, this first teaching... It really illustrates an important principle for the people of God. It's illustrating what is acceptable worship to God. Jesus states it in terms that the Jews would understand regarding the giving of a gift to the altar, but the underlying principle that is at work here is relevant for us. And it's that if you know that you have wronged a brother or a sister in Christ, if you know that a brother or a sister justifiably has something against you, do not dare to worship God before you go and reconcile with your brother. Don't dare. Only once you are reconciled to your brother can you rightfully worship God. And this is an important principle for godly worship that so many Christians ignore. We reduce its importance. But it's very clear here, if you want your worship to be genuine, if you want your worship to be acceptable to God, then reconcile to those whom you have wronged. 
You don't get to hold on to anger towards a brother all the while worshiping your father through Christ. And you know why? Because we are one body in Jesus Christ and a body cannot be divided and still function properly. And so we need to be zealous to reconcile our wrongs with one another. Now just to press this a little bit, there's only a couple of guys in here, three of you. But are you angry towards your wife or your children? Do you yell at your wife? Do you call her names? Do you treat your children and your wife with contempt? Do you go the other way with it? Do you give them the silent treatment? Do you treat them like a, a child? You're ignoring them. And then come here and worship God and open your Bibles and then wonder, why does God feel far away? It's not a mystery. If that's how you're acting at home, it's because you need to repent. You need to ask forgiveness of your wife and your children. You need to repent to God. And women, it's the same question for you. Do you view your husband as a fool? Do you hold him in contempt? Do you bash him to other women? You're entertaining anger in your heart, and you need to repent. To all of us. I mean, do we find ourselves at home complaining and putting down and insulting our brothers and sisters in Christ, and then coming here on a Sunday morning and worshiping with our brothers and sisters in Christ? How does that make sense? It's unacceptable. And it requires repentance before God and going to that person, whether they know it or not, if that's how you've been treating them. Jesus takes this so seriously. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. What Jesus is teaching us there, he's saying, you, you don't get to let a wrong that you committed stew because of your pride. You don't get to do that. If you know you've done wrong, then come to terms quickly. Or else you'll get thrown in jail, and you will not leave until you pay every last penny. He's basically saying there, there is a time for mercy, and that time will eventually pass. It'll be too late. Ephesians 4, 26 to 27, Paul says the exact same thing. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Know that you've done something wrong. You know that you're angry. Don't let it fester. Deal with it. You know, the... One of the things that I think is so evident in our world nowadays is that the world has completely lost the ability to say sorry. The world's just lost the ability to apologize, whether it be for foolishness or something that they've meaningly done wrong. And honestly, the sad thing about it is so many followers of Christ have too. Like I can see it bleeding into the church where followers of Christ have lost this ability to say sorry. And it should not be. We do not follow the ways of the world. 
It's pride, and God opposes the proud. And so don't be found in that camp. Do not be found to be a follower of Christ who cannot say sorry for wronging a brother or sister. God opposes them. The last thing I would say is, listen, if you, if you struggle with anger, you know, if, if, then you need to recognize that the problem is in your own heart. This is what Jesus is saying. At the root of it, the problem is in your own heart. It's not the person who comes against you. It's not the brother or sister who said something foolish or did something that offended you. It is a problem in your own heart. And you need to deal with whatever's going on. And so I would end just by saying this. Listen, if you're listening to this message and you're just sitting there going, man, I think that's me. I think... I really struggle with anger and, and I need some help, then that's what I'm here for. That's what your brothers and sisters are here for, but I'm here and I will walk with you through it. If you just know this is you, then reach out to me. We'll walk through it. Your brothers and sisters will walk through it. Come to terms quickly with it. Deal with it, lest your anger destroy you. Does it keep you from worshiping God as you should? Your Father, I know that a message like this is heavy. I know that it can weigh on our hearts. Father, I think the way that Jesus taught this, I think that's, that's your intention. You want us to take this seriously. You don't want us to, to walk around with anger in our hearts and just kind of, oh, well, you know, it's not a big deal. No, it is a big deal. We are to reflect you. We are to reflect Christ, who is full of compassion, full of grace, full of mercy. And yes, we know there are times in Scripture where Jesus showed anger, but we know that that was a righteous anger, and that's not what we're talking about here, and that's not 95% of what happens in the human heart. So, Lord, may we not make excuses for ourselves. Father, may we take time today, this week, to repent, if so needed, to go to those whom we have wronged and say, I'm sorry. To come before you and ask you to root out the anger in our heart. That we may deepen our relationship with you and deepen our relationship with one another. And Father, we know that through Christ, hope abounds. It's, it's not a a hopeless thing, hope abounds, but when we come to you, when we repent, will you work in us one degree at a time, making us more like Christ. And so for those who, who struggle with anger, it only remains hopeless so long as we refuse to deal with it. But Father, as we willingly deal with it, you meet us exactly where we are at. And God, in those moments, grace abounds and mercy abounds. 
And it's those moments where we know that you, you don't give up on us. Father, that you're always with us, that you, you'll be an encouragement to us. And so, Lord, help us to willingly deal with these things in our heart. That we may be that salt and that light. That we may live in beautiful unity with one another and with Christ. Through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name.